Happy question show day. As always, your questions, my answers. Before we get on to it, I think it's time to share the results of the poll. So as you know, Everyday Astronaut and I did videos. He talked about the Titan Dragonfly. I talked about the Comet return mission. And it was <laughs> was not even in any way. He, 85% of you wanted to see the Titan Dragonfly. 15% wanted to see the Caesar mission. I don't blame you. I would have voted against me, but you know somebody had to advocate for that mission, so that came to me. We'll pass along the results to NASA, and like I said, I'm sure they will ignore it for the hilarious internet stunt that it is. All right, let's get on with the questions. Douglas Smith. It's worth noting that the space shuttle with its RS-25 engines was actually a more powerful rocket than the Falcon Heavy. It's just that the shuttle was so heavy by itself that there wasn't much reserve left over for payload. So the Falcon Heavy has a higher payload capacity in the end. This is a great point that people need to be able to compare apples to apples. And so you hear people say that that the capacity of the Falcon Heavy is the most powerful rocket since the Saturn V, and that's not true. The space shuttle was more powerful than the Falcon Heavy. And just to give you some comparisons, right? So if you have the Falcon Heavy in its, um, in its reusable mode, it can do about 30 tons into low Earth orbit. In its expendable mode, it can do about 65 tons. Now the dry mass of the space shuttle was 82 tons. So the capacity of the space shuttle system was much higher than the Falcon Heavy, and that, that's in the Falcon Heavy's expendable mode. The key is, of course, that when the space shuttle launched, it had to carry the entire orbiter, which was habitable area, which was food, which was supplies for the astronauts, and the actual glider that would then return to Earth. So the Falcon Heavy is amazing, and the Falcon Heavy is very powerful, and the Falcon Heavy, what makes the Falcon Heavy the most amazing thing is the level of reusability and the price that you can get these launches for. In the reusable mode, it's like down to $90 million a launch. In its expendable mode, it's like maybe $250 million a launch. But the space shuttle was more like half a billion to a billion dollars per launch. So that's the real key right now. But the space shuttle was a monster, very powerful rocket, and we won't see anything that powerful until the SpaceX big Falcon rocket actually starts launching. Nastro PC. My plan, if you slingshot a massive spinning mass close to a black hole, say Magnetar, could you spin up the black hole giving it angular momentum and make its event horizon more and more oblate? And with the poles of the event horizon closer to the singularity in a more strongly warped space-time, would the Hawking radiation flux from the increase? So I don't know exactly what's going to happen with Hawking radiation as you flatten out the event horizon, but, but let's talk about some of these concepts because some of them are very interesting. When you spin up a black hole very quickly, the event horizon does flatten out. Now, the actual, it can't flatten out to the point that the singularity is revealed. As the black hole gets faster and faster and spins closer to the speed of light, relativity demands that it can't keep spinning up faster and faster. So, but you do get this flattening of the event horizon, which is really interesting. But the part that's really cool is that black holes are one of the most efficient ways to turn mass into energy. And so, you know, when you think about things like nuclear explosions, we think about chemical rockets, these are all just, you know, 
potentially a fraction of a percent or maybe a couple of percent converting from from you know taking the energy out of the matter itself but with black holes you can take that up to 42 percent that is sort of the theoretical amount and the way that you do this is you drop matter into the black hole and that matter gets torn up and you get this enormous amount of energy that gets that gets thrown back out in terms of material that gets sort of hasn't quite gone in and gets spun out as like sort of uh, um, sort of kicked off into space and then also the gamma radiation that pours out of it. Now, still more than half goes into the black hole. And so you can imagine having a black hole, sort of the most future civilizations, the most advanced civilizations are going to have pet black holes that they drop matter into and they're going to extract the energy that comes out of it and they're going to be spinning it up and they're going to be spinning it down and extracting rotational energy out of that black hole and the accretion disk. It's a, it's kind of a, it's a mind-bending idea to think about that black holes are sort of the most useful ways to generate energy in the universe. Jericho NC. If the Kessler syndrome becomes a huge issue and makes launching into orbit almost impossible, could we launch from the north or south poles as a last resort? The Kessler syndrome, of course, is this idea that there's so much space satellites and junk and debris orbiting the Earth right now that you could get this cascade where one spacecraft smashes into another spacecraft and then sends out debris and that debris hits other spacecraft and they get turned into more debris and eventually you just got this sphere of shrieking metal surrounding the planet and then you can't launch any spacecraft through it because it would just be like a buzzsaw. And you saw this dramatized in the movie Gravity where these space stations were all smashing each other up. And this is a legitimate concern and as we move forward, as there are more and more spacecraft in space, you're going to see this, you know, more and more of them are going to be crashing into each other and we could run into this, this sort of runaway cascade. Now, there is less debris that has those orbits. Like most of the spacecraft are doing this this orbit around the equator, you know, to various heights and and various latitudes north and south. So in theory there's going to be less just spacecraft that will be contributing debris. But if they cross over, right? So you're gonna have one spacecraft that's gonna be on this polar orbit, it's gonna cross something that's on a on an equatorial orbit, they're gonna smash into each other, and now you've got the debris going on this polar orbit. So really, any way you look at it, right, this stuff's going to be interacting and churning and causing this this destruction. And it's going to last for a long time until the the debris gets close enough to the atmosphere and, and comes back in. And if it's really high altitude stuff, it could last for thousands of years. So So dealing with our space junk and dealing with the various leftover boost rockets and things like that is a big problem that we do need to work on and we need to track down and minimize before it becomes a bigger issue. Terry Russell, is it beneficial for a society that immediately evaluates every technological advancement for possible use as a military weapon to be turned loose into the universe? That's humanity, right? That's what we do, is that we get our hands on new technological improvements and we figure out how to make our lives easier, and we figure out how to turn them into weapons of war. And I can't imagine any time, any place that we could go, any, that we wouldn't do that same thing. If we go to other worlds, we're going to be mining asteroids, and we're going to be able to turn these asteroids into metal and other stuff for construction, and of course an asteroid is like the perfect way to 
is a perfect kind of weapon that you could just take an asteroid to give it the right trajectory and you could have it smash into the country of your enemy and take them completely off the map. So I, I, there will never be a time when we're ready. The hope is that we will gain more and more wisdom. When you look at sort of the progress of humanity over the last few thousand years, we're evolving into a less warlike civilization. And I know it feels like when you read the news, there's more and more stuff going on. But if you look at sort of the overall statistics, there's less war, there's less people dying from, from terrorist attacks and things like that, that in general, we are becoming a more wise, better connected, more compassionate society. And so we would expect that to keep going on. And by the time we're able to actually go to other star systems, we will have become you know, not quite as nasty as we were in the past. Mammalama. Obviously, protein plays an important part in a human diet. And every human on a long mission, we need to provide or grow a protein source. I've only heard questions of growing plants so far. Would beans provide the protein, or is there a possibility of raising some marine creatures like anchovy or something? The vegans in the audience will tell us that for human beings, you can survive perfectly well on a plant-based diet that there are various kinds of important proteins that you need to get. You can't get them all from one source, so you can't just get them from, say, beans, but if you're fairly careful with your diet and you mix and match the kinds of foods that you eat, then you can, the human being can, can last on a plant-based protein diet. You just need to be a little more careful than if you just you know, eat meat and milk and cheese and things like that. So, so definitely we can survive. You can imagine some future space colonies, they're going to probably have to get a lot of their food from plant protein. It's, you know, to try and bring along, say, meat like cows and pigs and things like that is going to be really tough. But you can imagine fish. There's some interesting things with aquaculture where they take tilapia fish and the fish live in the water where they are hydroponically growing various kinds of plants and they, they have a cycle where the the plants provide oxygen for the fish and the fish provide nutrients for the plants and so that that can work there's also various research into different kinds of plankton um, people have turned algae into a palatable no not palatable a terrible tasting apparently but a food source that can be richer in protein so you can imagine over time People are going to figure out ways to do this. And then also there's also this idea of synthetic meat. So people are starting to vat grow various kinds of protein, meat protein, like chicken or beef or things like that. And you can imagine future colonists 3D printing vat grown protein that was never an animal. So I think that over time we'll be able to figure out the kinds of food that we can make for these long duration space flights and eventually living out in space. Benjamin Ringrose. I was curious about how an actual object maintains its position at the Lagrange point. For example, the James Webb Space Telescope, will it sit on the Lagrangian point or will it orbit the point? Alright, so a quick refresher, there are five Lagrange points, these are these gravitationally stable points between two bodies. So you've got, say, the Sun and the Earth, 
There's one Lagrange point that is in between the Sun and the Earth. There's another one that's on the other side of the Earth. There's another point that's on the other side of the Sun. And then there's a point that is leading the Earth in its orbit and another one that is trailing the Earth in its orbit at, at 60 degrees. So those are the five Lagrange points. And you can be in one of those spots and don't require very much fuel to maintain your position. Now, the L1, L2, and 3, the ones that are lined up between, say, the Sun and the Earth, those are unstable, which you can kind of imagine there's like a mountain and you've got a ball at the top of the mountain and if that ball gets off the top of the mountain it starts to roll downhill it rolls down that gravity well faster and faster and it gets harder and harder to put it back on the top of the of the mountain while L4 and L5 are gravitationally stable they're like a, a bowl and so if you take your, your ball and you put it at the bottom of this bowl and then you roll it a little bit up it's going to roll back down into it and so James Webb is going to be going to the L2 point, and that L2 point is unstable, which means that it's going to need fuel. Now, it's not going to be exactly on the Lagrange point because the Earth and the Sun, you know, the Earth is at different distances between the Sun and, the, you know, as it goes around its orbit. The Moon is going around the Earth, and it has a gravitational impact. Jupiter is out there. So it's going to be attempting to maintain as close as it can to the Lagrange point and it's going to be using fuel to do this. And this is one of the reasons why the James Webb isn't going to last as long as the Hubble Space Telescope, is that the James Webb has a set amount of fuel to maintain this position at this L2 Lagrange point, and eventually it's going to drift out of the point, and then it's going to not have enough fuel to get itself back there, and it's just going to get drifted, it's just going to drift further and further away until it is not usable as a science experiment anymore. So you can imagine future missions going to these, these L4 and L5 points, and they won't need to have any station keeping. They'll be able to just kind of, they'll sit there, and gravity will hold them in that place. Bernard Rabinold. I think the problem with living in space is you're vulnerable to collisions from small objects. With a planet, the atmosphere eats them, while larger objects can be spotted and planned against ahead of time. There are a bunch of issues in trying to live outside of Earth, right? Earth does so much for us that we just take for granted. And we've talked about artificial gravity, and, we're, and the, our next episode is going to be talking about this, and just what would it take for us to do that? We've talked about magnetospheres, about generating some kind of artificial magnetosphere to try and protect you from radiation. And impacts from micrometeorites and other space debris is another big problem that's going to have to be figured out. And right now, the, the, the astronauts on board the space station just sort of deal with it by luck, right? That hopefully uh, no chunk of debris is going to go through and, and puncture the, the space station. And if something big is coming that they know where it's going to be, they move the space station to, to get out of the way. But for space stations that are going to be in deep space, they're going to be larger, they're going to be there for longer, they're probably going to need some kind of protective surrounding. And one of the ideas for this, for example, is these inflatable habitats, they've got potentially like a Kevlar shield that goes around them that is that would be able to absorb the impact energy from these micrometeorites or small you know, asteroids that would smash into them, but beyond a certain point, you can't sort of avoid it. It's just going to hit your space station and you're going to have to deal with whatever impact happened, which is kind of scary. And so it is really glad that we do have 
the Earth and its atmosphere to absorb the stuff. Mars is better, but its atmosphere is so thin that it doesn't absorb a lot of the, you know, the the larger rocks that are coming its way. So that's just another one of the risks we're going to have to face living in space. DHFF. In regards to the Dyson spheres and infrared heat, what if one solution is that they're channeling that infrared away through the poles of the sphere, and if those poles are not facing us, wouldn't we detect that radiation, yes? We follow the laws of thermodynamics in my house. Um, but yeah, so if you're going to try to take the heat that you are generating, that you are absorbing from the sun, and you're going to try to gather it together into some kind of focused beam, then that is going to generate more heat and you're going to have to let the ha that heat go. And so you may very well be able to create some kind of, of rays of heat that are coming out the top, or some kind of like laser beams or something. Who knows what futuristic technology that the aliens are going to be able to come up with. But And if you end up being on the one of those pointed at you, it's going to be like a gamma ray burst. You're going to be able to see these from, from even farther across the universe. And so at the end of the day, as long as they haven't figured out a way to violate the laws of thermodynamics, they're going to have to let their heat go. And so the question is, you know, what is the way that you let your heat out into the universe? You radiate that heat in the way that is that provides the, the lowest possible signature. And the way you do that is you let it off equally in all directions as much as possible. So you're not creating these really bright beams that people would be able to notice from far away. Just because one isn't pointed at us doesn't mean that one isn't pointed at someone else. So this is the problem. But I know you, I mean, by all means, people, you know, we'll keep, we'll keep banging away at this until we uh, figure out how to, how to hide a Dyson sphere. Christian Burio, does a black hole have a size or is it just a point of mass? Great question, right? Take a black hole, or let's take something larger, right? So you've got like a star. Star has outward pressure, which is the, the the fusion at the core of the star is generating radiation. The radiation is pushing the star, and and that is counteracting the gravity that's trying to pull it inward. And the star has a size, and the more energy that's going on in the middle of the star, then the the bigger the star will be, depending on the amount of gravity. But the star has this kind of minimum size. And a white dwarf star, for example, no longer has that fusion in the core. It's no longer generating that energy, and so it collapses down to this this degenerate matter, which is sort of held in by this thing called the Pauli exclusion principle, essentially kind of the minimum size that you can mash atoms together before they start to like try to be in each other's space. And a neutron star is even smaller. You've been able to push it even beyond that, and now you're mashing uh, protons and electrons together, and everything is just neutrons. You can get something that's even smaller, and then if you have more gravitational pressure than that, then the whole thing will collapse into a black hole. And the question is, is there some kind of size, right? Is there another level, but it's inside the event horizon of a black hole, and we just don't know what it is? And the answer is, we don't know. Maybe there is some other fundamental force, quark pressure or something that we don't understand, that that then black holes reach this size, and then they don't get any smaller. Or maybe there's a bunch of levels where you can have a black hole that of a certain mass has a, a singularity or a, a nucleus that's of a certain size, and then if it's a, a more mass, then it can overcome that and get smaller. But then the other idea, and this is the one that kind of is kind of 
bizarre to think about is that black holes, all black holes are just getting smaller and smaller within, you know, the singularity is just getting, and, and it's getting smaller at an increasing rate forever, infinitely small, at an accelerating rate. We just don't know which one it's going to be, and we may never know. There's no real easy way to be able to perceive inside the event horizon of a black hole. So it may very well be that we're never going to know. But it's a great idea to think about. Werner Heenop. If you meet any famous person, living or dead, that's contributed to astronomy, who would it be? I'm thinking a beer with an astrophysicist, rocket engineer, inventor, astronomer. I would love, I mean, I wish I could talk to Galileo. Right? I mean, Galileo gave us so much of our modern astronomy, and he had this really great way about thinking about it, about doing observations. He was one of the first people to take this telescope and point it in the sky, and he discovered all the stuff. He saw the rings of Saturn, although he thought Saturn had ears. He discovered the Galilean moons. He saw, uh, he saw that Venus has this crescent shape. He looked at the Milky Way and realized that it's actually a bunch of stars and not just this cloud. He was at the very beginning of what modern astronomy is, and all he could do was come up with questions, right? What's this? What's that? What's that over there? Why does that look like that? Why does this do that? I don't know. And he tried as best he could. He could you could see in the work that he did, in the kinds of experiments that he ran, the kinds of tests and his own thinking, he had this very scientific mindset, but he just didn't have the tools available, and nobody else was really working on it at the same level that he was. So. I would love to be able to sit down with Galileo and just like answer questions for him, right? Can you imagine how much you could make his life better by just like answering all of the things that he was wondering to help bring him up to speed to modern astronomy? It would be fascinating. So I think that's someone who I would love to be able to talk to. Rockaway CCW. If our solar system takes 230 million years to circle the galaxy, how does that line up with all the mass extinctions in our planet's history? Is there a pattern? No. There is not a pattern between that 230 million years and the mass extinctions of the Earth. However, there does, maybe, 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 super, probably not the case, seem to be a pattern between the, the solar system's position above and below the galactic disk and mass extinctions. So... There seems to be, as you know, the solar system is orbiting around the galaxy, but it's not just, it's kind of like a warped record. And so the solar system is going up and down, above and below the plane of the galactic disk. And so the thought is, is that maybe as the solar system rises up above the galactic disk, that we're no longer as protected by kind of the, the shared interstellar medium the magnet you know the magnetic fields of all of the stars and the bubbles that they're creating from the galactic cosmic radiation that's coming towards the earth and so it could very well be that there are a rise in extinction events when we're out of that protective area and then we fall back down into the disk and then we're more protected again but the Association is fairly weak. We've reported on it many times in the past on Universe Today, and then someone has said, no, no, it doesn't line up, and then someone goes, oh, wait a minute, what about this? So I'm sure we'll just go back and forth. So there isn't the one correlation, but there might be the other one, which is pretty interesting. Sartha Gower. You said that as a planet passes in front of the star, it dims the light emitted from the star, and that's how we know a planet is orbiting the star. What if a planet's orbit is inclined in such a way that when observed from Earth, it doesn't dim the light from the star? How can we find that planet? 
talked about the transit method, right? And this is this idea that you've got a star, you've got a planet that passes in front of the star. We're lined up perfectly so that when that planet passes in front of the star, it dims the light ever so slightly and we can detect that change in light and that's how we know there's a planet there. What do we do if the star, if the, if the three don't line up perfectly? We can't. So when you hear about all of those planets that are out there that have been discovered, they've all been because you've got this perfect alignment of Earth, planet, and star. And that's a tiny fraction, like I forget the exact number, like 5% of the stars that are out there, or, or even lower, are going to have that perfect alignment. The vast majority of them won't have that kind of alignment. And so we can't use the transit method to find them. Fortunately, there's another method, although it's kind of got the same problem. That's the radial velocity method. And that's where the planet is orbiting the star, and because of its gravity, it's pulling the star back and forth and that causes the Doppler shift of the light coming from the star and they can detect those planets and those work a little above and a little below the star when they're when they're lined up but still they wouldn't detect say a star that is star system that's face on and the because the, you're not getting the star to move forward and backward away and towards us you're getting the star that's kind of doing this circle in the sky from our perspective to really find those planets, we're going to need to have visual astronomy. We're going to need to have very powerful telescopes that use coronagraphs to block out the light from the star, to be able to see what's around them, and that is going to open up an entirely new realm of planetary discovery, because now that other 95 plus percent of, of planets out there are going to be available for us to see, but it's going to take another level in space telescopes or ground-based telescopes to actually get there. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Question Show. As always, thanks everyone who sent in their questions. If you've got a question about space and astronomy, whether it's one of the episodes that we did or just some random idea, just add it to any comment anywhere on any one of my videos. I will gather a bunch of them up and I'll answer them here. I'll see you next week.